Okay, so after, uh, over the past uh, few weeks, we've been, so we're going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, we've come up to chapter 28, which is found on page 936 in your hymnal. which is of baptism. And uh, so two weeks ago, I sort of gave some introductory uh, comments on baptism. The first is with the Greek word, uh, one of the... So, so the, the Christian tradition that I grew up in uh, said very strongly that the word baptizo means immerse. And that was a pretty significant uh, argument for uh, specifically baptism by immersion. Uh, so we looked at some passages uh, a couple of weeks ago which demonstrate that baptism does not refer exclusively to immersion. One of those is in the Gospel according to Mark chapter 7, where the Pharisees baptize their couches, uh, among other things, when they, when they return from the marketplace. So I think common sense tells us that's, they're not immersing their couches in a bucket of water every time. But clearly that baptism, uh, doesn't refer to a mode. Again, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says that, uh, the Israelites were baptized into Moses and in the cloud at the Red Sea. Uh, the Israelites clearly were not immersed. Uh, Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army were the ones that were immersed. And so the, the, the term baptism is going to point us more towards a ceremonial washing. That's how we can pull together all of the instances in the New Testament where the term baptism is used. It's a ceremonial washing and specifically an identification. Baptism identifies us with Christ. Now, last week, uh, because I was out, Jeremy Cologne filled in, and he brought in the judgment component of baptism. Uh, and Peter refers to this, uh, with, in, when he refers to Noah, uh, and, and the salvation in the ark, that water is a sign of judgment. Uh, and so baptism really does carry a number of layers of meaning for us in the New Testament. One is judgment. Uh, and if you think of the ark being carried on top of the waters of judgment, that is the way in which God preserved uh, his people from the judgment that he was bringing upon the earth. And uh, then the, so, so in identifying with Christ, and Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 6, that in baptism we are not just identified with his ascension, we're not just identified with his reign, but we are buried with him in baptism. Uh, so that identification is an identification in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and reign. Uh, so, so when the believer, when, when the Christian is being baptized, it's an identification with the entire, uh, work of Jesus Christ. 
The other thing that we pointed out about baptism is that it is closely related to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and every time in the New Testament, uh, or actually in the Scriptures, I mean, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48, Acts chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3, chapter 53 and verse 15, Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27, and Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29. Every single time that the Holy Spirit is coming upon the people, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people, or the Holy Spirit is sprinkled. So it's always pouring, it's always sprinkling which we'll, we'll touch later when we get into the proper mode of baptism. So we're not there yet to discuss the proper mode. We're simply focusing on just baptism in general. What does this mean? And, and just to be clear, up to this point, we are in full agreement with 90% of Baptists, Methodists, uh, Lutherans, everybody else, uh, all Christian churches uh, will, will generally say that baptism is an identification with Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the difference is, is it properly applied to the children of believers, or is it only properly applied upon profession of faith? Either way, there's an identification with Christ. Uh, one group says, this is my public testimony, um, and and the other group will say this is, in a in a real sense, the parents' public testimony uh, of of God's covenant promises for their children. So we've not gotten into the differences yet. At this point, what I'm saying is plain vanilla, generic. This is what the scriptures teach us about baptism. So um, I want to go ahead, I, I think Jeremy touched on section one last week, yes? Um, so let me just quickly go over section one in case he and I are approaching it a little bit differently. But uh, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. So, so the first obvious thing there is that baptism is a New Testament Sacrament, and it is ordained or commanded by Jesus Christ. Um, and the place in which Christ very clearly institutes baptism as a perpetual ordinance is where? What, what would you think of when you think of the place where Jesus Christ specifically says, this is what you're to do from here on out regarding baptism. The Great Commission, exactly. You are to go and teach the nations, discipling them and baptizing them in the name of, and this is a significant point, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus Christ institutes Trinitarian baptism. Uh, and so there is some debate. Uh, 
If you've been with us for any number of years, you'll know that a few years ago, we baptized an adult uh, who had been baptized in a Pentecostal Jesus-only congregation. And uh, he believed that uh, because it was not done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that it was not a proper baptism. And so we accommodated his conscience and, and baptized uh him in the Trinitarian formula. But that's where that comes from, is is the Great Commission. All authority is given unto me on heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore into all nations, uh, teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the New Testament perpetual ordinance that Christ institutes. Um, and then the, the purpose of baptism, we continue on in that section, uh, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. So, If you are going to be a member of a Christian congregation, you should be baptized. This is the ordinance which brings you into the visible church. It's it's baptism which brings you into the visible church as you identify with Jesus Christ. Uh, But also, so not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign of and seal of the covenant of grace. Now, that language there is important uh, for us to to just bear in mind, when, when you hear the word seal, that something is a seal, you might think of a mason jar. The wax around the ring or whatever is what seals the jar shut, or not in a mason jar. Anyway, you get, you get my point. Uh, this is not a seal in that sense of, of ensuring that you're there. It's a seal in the sense that a royal decree goes out with the seal on that decree. You can look at the, or, or you know, just a common modern day example, uh, if you have to have a document notarized, uh, you, you take a, the exact same piece of paper to the Department of Motor Vehicles, or whatever, uh, pick, a, pick a government agency, maybe they don't work that way. Anyway, you take the exact same piece of paper, <laughs> to some official agency without a seal on it, and they will look at you and say, yeah, no, I'm not accepting this. You take that exact piece of paper to them with a notarized seal on it, and they go, okay, this is an official document. That's what baptism is. It is that seal, that that official stamp that Jesus Christ has claimed this person that this person is identified with Jesus Christ. Now, we still, and, and this, is, this is one of the 
important things to remember regarding baptism, we still have a responsibility to make sure that the outward seal corresponds to an inner reality. And again, I don't care if you're a Baptist, uh, in other words, if you believe in believer's baptism by profession of faith, or if you are Presbyterian and believe in covenant baptism, the job is the same in both circumstances. The fact that you got splashed underneath some water does not make you go into heaven. Or the fact that you got some water poured on top of your head does not mean that you're going to heaven. It means that this is a seal of the authenticity of the claim. But you and I are called to make sure that our hearts are tender, that our hearts are, that, that, that this seal reflects a reality that is in us. Uh, because it is very possible to have that official seal placed on a person and that person to end up in hell, uh, whether they are Baptist, whether they are Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, whatever. Uh, it is, it is absolutely, I mean, the writer to the Hebrews clearly says that a number of people are, are falling away and are in danger of falling away from, from grace, uh, in, in these things. But so, so remember that the seal, that official stamp, is an admission into the visible church. Now, earlier we talked about the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. That's an important principle for Reformed theology in general. And a proof text for this distinction between the visible and invisible church is in Romans, um, I think it's chapter 3, or it's either chapter 2 or 3, uh, where, where Paul says, what is the advantage in being a Jew? He's just made the point that Jews and Gentiles are equally unrighteous before God. Jews and Gentiles equally stand condemned before God. And so he asks the rhetorical question, so what advantage is there of being a Jew? And his response is, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And so you've got this distinction between the unbelieving Jew and the unbelieving Gentile. And Paul says the unbelieving Jew has a distinct advantage over the unbelieving Gentile. And so we recognize that and, and, you know, it's not just that passage. Uh, when, when Jesus Christ says, there are many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do mighty works in your name? And I'm going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Um, clearly, these are people who are members of the visible church. They believe that they are united to Christ. And at the judgment day, they discover they are not. Because that visible and invisible, that external and internal reality was not in harmony with each other. So, so baptism is a sign and a seal of admission into the covenant of grace, of the ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which 
sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the age. So it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, and it's a commitment. It's a commitment that the person baptized is going to walk in newness of life. It's a sign and seal of regeneration, remission of sin, and my giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. And again, at this point, everybody agrees. Uh, all, all the various, no matter what your church background, you may be a Baptist, you may be a Presbyterian, whatever, we all agree on this stuff. Uh, this, is, this is where we're all on the same page. Um, and then, obviously, that point that it's to continue until the end of the world. Um, and then the second element, the out, or the second uh, section, the outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. So, two things that section two tells us, and I think both of them I don't think they're controversial. That second one, particularly here in our more individualistic American context, that is truly horrific. That's an eraser. Um, but that, that second section tells us two things uh, in particular. And the first is that it is to be Trinitarian and the second is it is to be performed by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Now, in this, Westminster is assuming that we have a theology of the office, of the ordained office. It's assuming it. It never really opens it up. This is something interesting about the Westminster Confession of Faith. It never really develops uh, a robust theology of church office. So you've got people uh, who are confessional who will hold very strongly to there are three distinct offices in the church. There's the office of minister, there's the office of ruling elder, and there's the office of deacon. You have others who equally strongly hold to there are two offices in the church. There's the office of elder, and you have some who teach and some who rule. Uh, and then there's the office of deacon. Uh, and for what it's worth, uh, I hold to a, it's, it's a Southern Presbyterian thing. It was developed, uh, by, by, uh, Thornwell in particular, uh, James Henley Thornwell, but it's a, it's called a two and a half office. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, the meaning behind that is in, uh, I think it's 2 Timothy, uh, 
chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, I believe, where, where Paul says the elder that rules is to be counted worthy of double honor, especially the one who labors in word and prayer. And so in those verses, Paul seems to be speaking about this category of elder, but then recognizing in that category of elder, there is one who is especially given to the ministry of word and prayer. Uh, and so that's where, uh, so, so this has been kind of a debate in, in reform circles for a while. No point in really opening that up at this point, uh, but simply to point out that uh, it's hard to, it's hard to even comment on this without, <laughs> without opening up a whole thing. Um, simply to point out that, that the assembly, the Westminster Assembly, and this is just everybody kind of at that time, whether you were Congregationalist, Episcopal, uh, Presbyterian, whatever you were at that time, recognized that there was a specific ordination uh, that was responsible. There was an overseeing body. And you think of Paul telling Timothy, don't neglect the gift that was placed in you by the laying on of hands of the presbytery. That laying on of hands of the presbytery is what we call ordained office. Uh, and, and we do it as a session, we do it uh, at the presbytery level, etc. So baptism is to be performed in a Trinitarian manner, and it is to... Uh, uh, be performed by a minister of the gospel, lawfully ordained, lawfully called thereto. Now, we'll cut it there because I'm out of time. But next week, we're going to start picking up, Lord willing, with some of the more Presbyterian distinctions. Uh, and if you look at your hymnal, you'll see section three, dipping is not necessary. <laughs> so, so we start getting into some of the, some of the more Presbyterian distinctions. Uh, but I'm gonna, I'm just gonna leave it right there by, by kind of emphasizing again these areas in which we all agree. It is instituted by Jesus Christ. It is to continue until the end of the world. It is to be performed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It signifies, uh, engrafting, regeneration, coming into the visible church. That's the, that's what baptism signifies. All of those things, all Christians should be agreed on. Uh, and then, like I said, beginning next week, we'll start to see some of the areas in which we do begin to have some differences of understanding what Scripture teaches uh, among, among fellow believers. So with that, I will stop right there. Uh, are there any questions, thoughts, comments? Eric? That is a, so, that is a debate that was going on at that time. It is a debate that has continued uh, throughout the church. It even is within, so there are some in the OPC who would say that a Roman Catholic baptism is not valid. 
There are some who would say that a Roman Catholic baptism is valid because it's Trinitarian. Um, so, so even within the same denomination, you're going to have differences of opinion. Uh, for what it's worth, I believe that Roman Catholic baptism is valid, uh, that it is Trinitarian. Uh, got a lot of differences with Roman Catholics on a lot of other things, but on that one... But at the same time, if a Roman Catholic came to me and just was absolutely convinced that their baptism was improper, I, we'd probably accommodate. Do you know if um, Catholics accept Protestant baptism? I don't. Never asked. Ne- never been in a position to wonder. <laughs> hey, <can I? laughs> would it be okay? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, good question. So, that's a great question. The, the, the relationship between repentance and baptism. A couple of weeks ago, we read, um, I think it was Acts 14, where uh, the, the uh, because I'm pulling this out of my head from weeks ago, I can't remember who it is that's speaking. I think it's Paul in, in Acts 14. But where he says, be baptized for the remission of sins. So he connects the two so closely that you can say one thing and point directly to the other thing without, you know, Paul is taking a shortcut there when when he connects baptism to repentance and remission of sin uh, by simply saying, be baptized and your sins will be forgiven. Uh, He's not teaching salvation by baptism that would undermine every other passage uh, that he ever writes concerning the gospel. But but he is saying there's such a close relationship here that I can say this and mean that. Uh, and so baptism is to be that sign and seal of repentance, of, of recognizing that I deserve the judgment waters. Uh, the waters are signs of judgment. And so when those waters are poured on me, or when I am immersed in those waters, those are judgment waters that, that I'm uh, having poured on me. Those are judgment waters that I'm being immersed in, uh, as, as well as that other layer of this is the Holy Spirit coming, uh, and, and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit presupposes a recognition that I need cleansing. Uh, a recognition that I am repentant. Uh, so, so those things are, the one is a sign of the other. Uh, and they are absolutely critical. One of the things that, um, I don't think it's in the confession, I believe it's in the directory of public worship that Westminster published, uh, but it speaks of improving our baptism. Uh, and, and that's an important phrase there, improving our baptism, is us growing into a more constant, uh, personal, essential awareness that I am repentant, I'm washed, I'm cleansed, I'm living a new life. This is something that we grow into. It's sanctification. 
but it, but it's a sanctification that always begins with our baptism, and that we're always called to come back to our baptism and remember that baptism, remember who we are, and live accordingly. Is that sort of getting the ballpark? So yes, that is a that is a that is a great question. That's where we're starting to get into reformed theology and I hate to I hate to answer it this way, but really that's what we're going to do next week. <laughs> so you have to come back. Uh but you do. You do. <laughs> uh Yeah. So so uh yeah, let me let me pause it there cuz uh, that is going to be getting it. We are going to be getting into that in sections three, four, and five. Oh, three through seven. Um, yes, so we'll we'll be getting into that. So let me let me go ahead and close this with a word of prayer, and uh, we can go into our time of fellowship. Heavenly Father, as we who have been baptized uh, sit and consider this doctrine, this sacrament that Jesus Christ has ordained, uh, would you draw each of our minds to our own baptism? Help us, Father, to seize it, to be seized by it, and to walk in newness of life, washed and cleansed by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.